They want this end times battle with Islam. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They'll clamp down and be hard to be tough and look tough uh, in the face of the adversary, which is poorly defined. And that'll provoke terrorist attacks. And they'll say, see, I told you so. I, I told you we have to clamp down on them harder. It's a, it's a weird phenomenon that they're running with. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Quirks and Quarks, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Real News Network, and Intercepted. During the ABC interview on Wednesday that Donald Trump did with David Muir, he asked Trump about torture. Mr. President, you told me during one of the debates that you would bring back waterboarding yeah. and a hell of a lot worse. I would words. do what I would do. I want to keep our country safe. I want to keep our country safe. What does that when mean? When they're shooting, when they're chopping off the heads of our people and other people, when they're chopping off the heads of people because they happen to be a Christian in the Middle East, when ISIS is doing things that nobody has ever heard of since medieval times, would I feel strongly about waterboarding? As far as I'm concerned, we have to fight fire with fire. Now, with that being said, I'm going with General Mattis. I'm going with my secretary because I think Pompeo is going to be phenomenal. I'm going to go with what they say. But I have spoken as recently as 24 hours ago with people at the highest level of intelligence, and I asked them the question, does it work? Does torture work? And the answer was yes, absolutely. Vince Warren of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Do not believe a word that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth, particularly with respect to this issue. There is zero chance that he spoke to high-level officials and they said torture works, because everybody knows that torture doesn't work, particularly if you're trying to get um, actionable, good, reliable information. Now, it might make the president feel better. It might make an angry president that is manufacturing an angry world feel better about his role in it, but it does not work. And what, But I think what's the most important piece here is that we're seeing what we saw just after 9-11, where folks will come out and paint this bleak world. Uh, they will manufacture, manufacture facts that will then be the backdrop for what is essentially regressive policies. Torture is illegal under U.S. law. It's illegal under international law. It does not matter how the president feels about it. It does not matter whether the president is interpreting um, his uh, generals and his uh, nominees to say, yeah, it's probably a good idea, or at least we should think about it. Uh, it's it's uh, There is a blanket prohibition on it, and this country needs to abide by that. So. Don't believe um, th that there is anyone really that is that is rational, insane, that has anything to do with intelligence or has any knowledge of the law that would say torture is a good thing that we should do because it isn't. I want to turn to Senator John McCain, uh, who chairs the Senate Armed Services Committee. On Tuesday, he tweeted, uh, POTUS can sign whatever executive orders he likes, but the law is the law. We're not bringing back torture. McCain further addressed the issue Wednesday on MSNBC's Morning Joe. The executive order is circumscribed by the law that we passed prohibiting the use of uh, torture. And even though the Army field manual can be reviewed, it still does not allow to uh, return to the use of uh, torture, including waterboarding. I'm 
happy that General Mattis has spoken out uh, against it, as has every General Petraeus, you name them. Any military leader you respect have said, we should not torture people. And I'm I'm very confident Mm. that it wouldn't stand uh, a day in court if they tried to restore that. So in. I want to turn to Kenneth Roth, executive director of Human Rights Watch, the group expressing its, well, deep concern over Donald Trump's agenda. Because Guantanamo is now there as an ongoing detention facility, it is an invitation for Trump to start refilling it, which I'm afraid Trump is determined to do. And it's worth noting that, that you know, one thing we expect either today or later in this week is um, an order from Trump to begin exploring or considering or some kind of word like that. the resumption of CIA dark sites. Now, it's interesting that this is going to be in in an executive order, because these dark sites are supposedly super secret, you know, even though we all know about them. Um, But the the order that we've, you know, has been reported on has the kind of obligatory caveat that, of course, we won't use torture. But, you know, what's the point of these black sites other than to use torture? That's why they were created in the first place. And speaking at a news conference on Wednesday, the House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi addressed the issue of the possible executive orders to reestablish black sites, uh, CIA prisons. Well, I think that this would be a step backward, and I'm not alone in thinking that uh, that what he, the path he's going down is wrong. It is not about our values as a country, and don't ask me, just ask John McCain and others. Uh, Any reverting to that, again, does not support our values, but also endangers our people who are there, whether it's from a security standpoint, an intelligence community, or um, in the military. So I I just think that it's, it's wrong, and I hope that he will rethink it, and I hope he will listen to even some Republican leaders on this subject. So that's the House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Vince Warren, um, should the Obama administration, should President Obama have gone after um, Bush administration officials involved with torture? Actually, had people tried, as CCR has tried to do over and over again, would that have sent a stronger message? It would have sent a much stronger message. And yes, President Obama absolutely should uh, have done that. And there is some controversy around the question of uh, should we be pursuing criminal prosecution for high-level Bush officials. But this is an example. One of the things we were saying at the time is that if we just do these things by executive order, if we just do these things by um, by sort of a consensus-based uh, discussion in a particular administration, it doesn't deter future administrations from bringing torture back. And so that's what we're seeing. Had President Obama sought to uh, uh, hold high-level Bush officials accountable, um, it, we would probably, or we might be in a different situation, at least that there would be a, a broader consensus that what was happening was wrong. And the question was, would be, what role did each individual have in it? It would make a stronger case to push back against uh, President Trump. It's, it's similar to uh, what we were, what Center for Constitutional Rights has done in the Supreme Court just recently. We had a case um, earlier in January where we were challenging Bush-level officials for rounding up Muslims um, in New York right after 9-11. The idea there is that if we can't rely on the federal government to hold its own lawbreakers accountable, then it really falls to civil society, groups like the Brennan Center and CCR, to try to hold them accountable uh, through any legal means that we can. Last comment, um, Faisal Patel, on where you see this administration going. 
um, and where you see the possibility, even with these executive orders, presidential memo, as just being a kind of arrows to a roadmap of what the president wants to do, but them being turned back by Congress. So I think the president is doing pretty much exactly what he said he would do. I mean, you've got to give him credit for that. If you go back and you look at his campaign plan and you look at his campaign pledges, I mean, he's delivering on what he said he would do. And that's what makes me really scared, because a lot of people were saying, oh, well, he's not really going to go that far. It's not going to be that that as bad as you think it is. Um, and it is as bad as we think it is, uh, as we thought it was going to be. Um, in terms of congressional action, I have to say, uh, while I'm an optimistic person, and I'm not too optimistic on that particular point. Uh, much of, of what uh, we expect from President Trump is being done under the immigration laws, where the executive traditionally does have fairly broad authority. You know, the other sort of basis for his actions seems to be national security. Again, another area where, you know, the executive is generally granted a, a fair amount of latitude. So I think we're going to have to fall back on the courts and civil society together to be pushing back uh, against these very extreme uh, and very unproductive ways of addressing what is a genuine security threat. Um, and I think that we will undoubtedly see litigation. Hopefully, Vince is ready with the paper soon uh, to be challenging uh, some of these laws. And I think that, you know, we are not in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And I think that's something to remember. The president painted a scary picture of the world. And yes, in some senses, the world is a scary place. But if you look at the United States, you know, the number of terrorist attacks we have in this country, while each one is horrific, is really does not result, uh, do not result in huge numbers of fatalities. The numbers are quite low, especially compared to when you look at the number of deaths uh, through gun violence. And, and we have a we don't have a terrorism emergency in the homeland that would warrant such an extreme reaction. Uh, and I'm hoping that the courts will also be receptive to the fact that this is not, this is not September 12th, okay? This is a long time after September 12th and that they will see through some of the, uh, the, the fluff that's been put around these uh, executive actions to get at their true intent, uh, which is nefarious. But it's a pleasure so rare Seeing captives gulp air Let's go waterboarding USA It's classified Let's go It's not torture if I say it Does torture work or doesn't it? The U.S. President Donald Trump says he knows the answer. This is what he said to Fox News' Sean Hannity. I spoke with people the other day who are in this world that we're talking about. They said absolutely it works. Absolutely. Now, General Mattis, 
mm-hmm. said that he doesn't intend to use it. I'm with him all the way. Do I believe it works? Yes, I do. Well, according to the man who literally wrote the book on the subject, Dr. Shane O'Mara says, according to science, torture does not work. In fact, that's the name of his book, Why Torture Doesn't Work. Dr. O'Mara is a professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College, Dublin. Dr. O'Mara, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you, Bob. Now, when presidents or officials from democratic countries discuss torture, uh, what kind of torture are they usually talking about? So typically they're talking about torture that uh, is usually called uh, white torture. This is no mark torture. It's torture that uh, attacks your fundamental physiology. But uh, after the experience, you're going to be pushed out into the street and it won't be clear that anything actually has happened to you because it won't be visible. Well, can you give me some examples of this white torture that doesn't leave marks? So white torture is really simple, straightforward. Uh, Sleep deprivation over a period of days, uh, starvation, suffocation, either through the use of a plastic bag or through waterboarding is a, a, a really good example of that. Well, before we get into more specifics on the actual tortures, just generally speaking, why do you say that torture does not work? The case I make is that torture for information gathering purposes from other humans is about the worst method that you could think of. And in that context, it simply does not work. Everything that we know about the effect that it has on the functioning of the brain, functioning of the body, militates against the conclusion that it works for reliable, repeatable, replicable, uh, veridical information gathering. Well, let's look into what happens in the brain. Uh, We'll take one example here. Let's start with sleep deprivation. What does that do to the brain? The the first thing is that we know that sleep deprivation causes a degradation across all uh, psychological states that you can assess in direct proportion to the degree to which you are sleep deprived. By that, I mean your memory is degraded dramatically, your ability to control your own emotions is degraded, your ability to make good judgments is degraded, your ability to deploy attention is degraded, your ability to simply think straight is degraded. These are all the things that you want to happen to perform normally during an interrogation. You want a person to be able to recall clearly. You want to be able to probe what it is that they were thinking at a particular point in time. So you're saying that it it does almost the opposite effect. We're asking someone to remember something, but their memory function is degraded by sleep deprivation. It's dramatically degraded. And we know this from more or less about 100 years of uh, uh, work in experimental psychology. If you go to Uh, the literature and you ask what are the cognitive effects of sleep deprivation you will be overwhelmed by the uh, the literature what parts of the brain are affected by sleep deprivation initially it is the uh, the for want of a better phrase the the pieces of the brain at the front uh, and at the top the uh, the frontal lobes but gradually what you see is is changes in activity right throughout uh, the whole brain and when we, when we're sleep deprived chronically as as the result of a stressor so for example somebody keeping you in a uh, a frigid room uh, with loud music, blaring lights, and uh, making you sit or stand in an uncomfortable position. Uh, your stress hormones level rise and rise really dramatically, and they stay at very elevated levels for prolonged periods of time. That in turn causes eventually a degradation of the very tissues that you want to be working normally during the course of an interrogation. The frontal lobes, the temporal lobes, those parts of the brain that are concerned with recall, that are concerned with supporting memory, supporting your ability to to think. 
Now, let's uh, take another torture technique here, waterboarding, which President Trump says is just short of torture. So what does that do to a person's brain? <laughs> um, so <laughs> waterboarding, I think, is probably about the worst of the tortures that you could personally be subjected to. We know that the experience of the loss of breath is deeply unpleasant. Air hunger is probably our most profound drive. It's the drive that occurs first when we leave the womb, when we're struck on uh, on the bum to make us uh, uh, breathe. And uh, we require that breathing to keep us alive. So waterboarding attacks that fundamental aspect of uh, your function. What's going on in the brain? So we've all experienced the diving reflex. This is a, a reflex that occurs when the temperature of the water that strikes the face is lower than the uh, air temperature that's around us. And it, we have it every morning when you wash your face, you get this feeling of <gasps> where you, you suck in a deep breath. So uh, ideally in waterboarding, what you do is, is uh, you keep the water cold, keep it below body temperature and you keep it below the temperature of the room. That causes uh, automatic activation of uh, receptors around the face which drive breathing in uh, the brainstem. And then the body, of course, encounters this uh, massive ingestion of water. And what you see, to the extent that this has been able to be studied, because it's difficult, uh, is a shunting of activity in the brain away from the frontal lobes and uh, higher brain regions, away from the periphery towards the uh, brainstem, which controls breathing. And this is where you get this automatic fight or flight uh, struggle for air deriving from. But you say then that the frontal lobe where the memory area is or where we process memory, that area is being neglected. That's, that's being neglected. Uh, we see a shunt of uh, activity from that part of the brain back towards the central core areas that are required to keep you alive. So according to science then, what's the best way to get useful information from someone who's unwilling to share it? When you actually go and look at the testimony of interrogators who are skilled at interrogating, is most of the people that they speak with most of the time are willing to talk, uh, and they're willing to talk at length. Um, and there are lots of reasons for this. One of the simple reasons is that we like to talk about ourselves. This is a trait that uh, humans have. We find self-disclosure intrinsically uh, rewarding. Now, how do you get people to talk who don't want to talk? In the investigation field, there's a tradition that goes back to the Second World War known as the Scharf Technique. Uh, Hans Joachim Scharf uh, was known as the master interrogator for the Gestapo. And his technique was very simple. He was very adept at active listening. He didn't impose a hypothesis on the person that he was speaking to. He wanted to get them to tell their story. Uh, he was very good at perspective taking. So what he would do is uh, actively try and see things through the eyes of the person uh, that he was talking to. Uh, he never asked a direct question, ever. Uh, his technique was always to ask questions obliquely. It might take two or three goals with one person. It might uh, happen very quickly with uh, another person. Russia, of course, has been much in the headlines and with good cause. 
But some conversations raise the question of just how evolved U.S. media's geopolitics are. When Donald Trump was asked by Fox News's Bill O'Reilly why he wouldn't condemn Vladimir Putin, whom O'Reilly called a killer, Trump responded, You got a lot of killers. What, you think our country's so innocent? As Adam Johnson noted on FAIR.org, this provoked outrage on the part of liberal patriots, like the New York Times editorial board, whose February 7th column, Blaming America First, said, quote, asserting the moral and political superiority of the United States over Russia has not traditionally been a difficult maneuver for American presidents. But rather than endorsing American exceptionalism, Mr. Trump seemed to appreciate Mr. Putin's brutality, which includes bombing civilians in Syria and, his accusers allege, responsibility for a trail of dead political opponents and journalists at home, and suggested America acts the same way, close quote. The perhaps one million civilians who died due to George W. Bush's unilateral invasion of Iraq alone would show the absurdity of suggesting respect for civilian lives as something that elevates the U.S. above Russia. Before you get to the thousands killed in Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria itself, to name some. And yes, Russia's violent stifling of dissent is terrible as is the United States' harsh punishment of whistleblowers, infiltration of dissident groups, and bombing of foreign journalists. Johnson suggests our record-breaking incarceration system and persistent institutional racism, if we're going to talk human rights abuses. The paper mentions the Iraq War and torture, calling them terrible mistakes. And it goes beyond implying that whatever harms the U.S. does have the best intentions. Quote, at least in recent decades, American presidents who took military action have been driven by the desire to promote freedom and democracy, sometimes with extraordinary results, as when Germany and Japan evolved after World War II from vanquished enemies into trusted, prosperous allies. Close quote. Well, the point isn't argued, it's just an article of faith that the U.S. killed an estimated 3.8 million people in Vietnam to promote freedom and democracy, despite President Eisenhower's admission that given the chance, 80% of the Vietnamese people would have voted for Ho Chi Minh, or that the use of covert terror to try to overthrow the elected government of Nicaragua, or military support for death squad regimes elsewhere in Central America were likewise inspired. As Johnson notes, it certainly is not that Trump's motives in questioning American innocence were noble. He was evoking America's own sins not to challenge them, but to apologize for those of the Russian president and maybe preemptively his own. But the media outrage around his comments didn't spotlight that scary cynicism. Instead, it talked down to readers who deserve better with an insistence that the U.S. operates on a higher moral plane. I want to also ask you about Yemen, Congressman. The White House has warned journalists and lawmakers against criticizing 
<clears throat> a botched raid by U.S. commandos on a Yemeni village last month that left 25 civilians and one U.S. soldier dead, a Navy SEAL. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism reports the January 28th assault killed nine children under the age of 13, with five other children wounded. Among those critical of the raid was Arizona Republican Senator John McCain. When you lose a $75 million airplane, and more importantly, American lives are lo life is lost and wounded, I don't believe that you can call it a success. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer lashed out at Senator McCain and at journalists for criticizing President Trump's decision to order the raid. It's absolutely a success. And I think anyone who would suggest it's not a success does disservice to the life of Chief Ryan Owens. He fought knowing what was at stake in that mission. And, um, and anybody who would suggest otherwise doesn't fully appreciate how successful that mission was, what the information that they were able to retrieve was, and how that will help prevent future terrorist attacks. I understand that. I think my statement is very clear on that, Kristen. I think anybody who, get, who undermines the success of that rage owes an apology and a disservice to the life of Chief Owens. Spicer's comments came as the United Nations appealed for $2.1 billion in emergency aid for Yemen. The U.N. warns 12 million people face the threat of famine brought on by the U.S.-supported Saudi-led war and naval blockade. Congressman Ted Liu, you have requested a Pentagon briefing on the raid. Um, do you call it a spectacular success, as the White House has? Having served on active duty, uh, I am deeply offended by the comments coming from the White House uh, by a president that has never served in the military and is now attacking people simply because people are raising issues about a military raid. What makes the American military so great is we learn from our mistakes. And what we want to do is learn what happened, not stifle dissent. And that's why I've concluded Donald Trump is a danger to the republic. He is stifling dissent. He is attacking institutions of democracy, such as the free press, such as the judiciary. This is what leads us down the road to authoritarianism. And specifically in Yemen, his White House press secretary said that it was a success by all standards. That is simply a lie. We lost a $75 million plane. We lost an American hero. Nine children were killed. Uh, that is not a success by all standards. We need to find out more about what happened with this raid. And we do know that the Reuters news agency reported that Donald Trump ordered the raid without adequate intelligence and without adequate ground support or adequate backup preparations. We need to find out what happened, not have dissent stifled. And the comment that anyone who questions this raid in any way has to apologize to the Owens family uh, because of because he died there and that it is unpatriotic to do so. Chief Owens is an American hero. And I believe one of the best ways to honor Chief Owens is to find out what happened in the raid and how the U.S. military can do better. That's how the United States military has always operated. That's how we should continue to operate. We need to learn not to stifle dissent. Never gonna learn, never gonna change, never gonna be the way you want me to be. I wasn't built that way, it's never gonna work. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. They're the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to customers, giving you an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, just the right sink and just the right bounce, and is delivered right to your door in a mysteriously small box. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015, and in addition to the mattress, the same team developed an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets that are available as well. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery in the U.S. and Canada, and a 100-night home trial. Plus, no salesman is going to watch you while you test it out. It's a nice perk. If you don't love it, They'll pick it up and refund you everything. As a special offer, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website. But again, it's casper.com best and use the offer code best at checkout. I'm never gonna change. Apparently, early claims of uh, the significant intelligence that was generated as a result of the disastrous raid in Yemen earlier this year were not accurate, shockingly. Now, earlier, uh, White House spokesman Sean Spicer said this month that anyone who undermines the success of that raid owes an apology and does a disservice to the life of Chief Owens. Uh, That's the Navy SEAL who lost their life there. Uh, We gathered an unbelievable amount of intelligence that will prevent the potential deaths or attacks uh, on American soil. Now, uh, Sean Spicer pointing out there, the Navy SEAL who died, of course, in addition to uh, Ryan Owens, six other U.S. service members were wounded. At least 25 civilians were killed, including nine children under the age of 13, one of them being just eight years old. And so they're making these claims about the intelligence that was generated as a result of this. Uh, So far, the only example of it that we've seen is an old bomb-making video that's of no current value. It's outdated by more than a decade. (laughs) I guess it was on their hard drives, hardly seems relevant now, but the reason this is especially relevant is because, uh, and Trump will hate this, it's an unnamed source in the intelligence community says uh, that not only has no evidence been given to them about significant intelligence, but none of the intelligence has been handed over to the sorts of intelligence officials who would be analyzing that intelligence. And so right now they're playing their cards, if those cards even exist, incredibly close to their chest. Right. I I doubt that the cards exist. Uh, The intent of that raid was not to gather intelligence. That was what they said after the raid went poorly. The intent of that raid was to capture one specific individual who managed to escape and then proceeded to taunt Donald Trump and his administration. After Mm -hmm. that information... Jimmy Kimmel. After that information was exposed, all of a sudden, uh, Sean Spicer changed the tune and made it seem as though the whole intention was to go in there and gather intelligence. They have not specified what that intelligence is. They haven't specified how that raid was a success in any way, shape, or form, especially considering the number of civilians who died and the Navy SEAL who lost his life as a result of this failed raid. And in reality, this should be a huge teachable moment for the Trump administration, but it has not been a teachable moment. They should have learned from the mistakes here where Trump refused uh, any intelligence briefings on these issues mm-hmm. and uh, only made this decision after being approached during a dinner a couple days prior to the raid being carried out. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps if a, just a tiny bit of the golf time had been instead put into uh, listening, being updated on intelligence, 
it might not have happened, theoretically. Uh, now, you bring up the possibility that this could be a teachable moment. Uh, he was recently talking with Fox and Friends, and they actually brought up some of the controversy around this. I mean, there you saw Sean Spicer saying that um, anyone who attacks this raid is dishonoring uh, the, li- the life of the service member who died. Of course, later on, uh, the, that service member's father said that they were against this raid and, and they didn't want to meet um, uh, President Trump. So let's find out what his response to that is. John McCain mentioning uh, that uh, young man who died, the Navy SEAL who died in that mission. Uh, His father has said that he didn't want to talk to you. Your reaction to that? Well, this was a mission that was started before I got here. This was something that was, uh, you know, just they wanted to do. Uh, And they came to see me. They explained what they wanted to do. The generals who are very respected. My generals are the most respected that we've had in many decades, I I believe. and they lost Ryan. And I can understand people saying that. I'd feel, you know, I'd, I'd feel, what's worse? There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse. But again, this was something that they were looking at for a long time doing. And according to General Mattis, it was a very successful mission. They got tremendous amounts of information. Yeah, it's a nice so, throwing General Mattis under the bus, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he's one of the, the buck stops with Mattis, I guess. I don't know. So uh, it is true that they had been considering doing this raid for quite some time. Plans were begun during the Obama administration, but Obama officials declined to sign off on what officials described as a significant escalation in Yemen. Just five days in uh, after the inauguration, Trump uh, greenlit the mission. Now, I've heard a couple of explanations as to to why the raid hadn't been conducted already. Uh, Some felt that it was simply too risky under any circumstances. Some wanted to wait for the particular sort of environment where it would be as dark as possible and there was moonlight on certain nights. Um, We don't know if that was a factor in this. But we do know that, like, which which is more likely? I, I I want us to keep it real with each other. Which is more likely, that the officials who apparently did not push Obama to do this were just waiting and they were so eager to do it or that Trump gets in and is looking for any opportunity to show that he's strong and he can get stuff done when he promised endlessly across the course of the campaign that he was going to destroy ISIS in 30 days, that he would have signed off on it. And the fact that, as Anna pointed out, he did so during a goddamn dinner implies that, look, he, he didn't seem that involved in the, the, the decision making. And I believe that that's true. But that doesn't mean that he didn't okay it and that it wasn't his idea. No, I mean, He just doesn't know what's going on. Remember that the right wing, the Republican Party, likes to consider itself the party of personal responsibility, taking personal responsibility for your actions. Well, the leader of your party right now is indicating that he will not take personal responsibility for the failure of this raid. He is the person who signed off on this, okay? President Obama did not sign off on this. President Obama is no longer president. You are the president. You are the person who greenlighted this raid and it went terribly wrong. And by the way, this was the first major military action or military mission under your watch. And you weren't even in the situation room as it was happening. Your Twitter account tweeted about how you're going to be on the Christian Broadcasting Network as the raid was taking place. Now, whether he tweeted that or one of his aides tweeted that, we don't know. But the point is, he refused intelligence briefings, made this decision during a dinner a few few days prior to the raid, and then wasn't even in the situation room as the raid happened. A Navy SEAL lost his life. If this was any other American president, that person would be torn apart. If this was Hillary Clinton, she would rightfully be torn apart. Mm. But when it comes to Trump, all he has to do is say, no, 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 it was, it was great. I have the best generals in the world. 
Best most general, respected. The most respected generals, I, I believe, in decades. Okay, yeah. And that's it. That's it. That's all he has to do to answer for himself. He failed here. He is not taking personal responsibility. And if Republicans are who they claim they are, then they should be outraged at the actions of this president. Some men never take the blame. Pass the buck, it seems their game. Wins they love to proclaim. Losses they try to hide in shame. But when you're the president, the buck stops here. Roosevelt died, and before you know, Truman's leadership must now show. Into bigger shoes he must grow. On the world stage he must now go. Because he was president, the buck stopped here. President Trump is reportedly rep proposing a 10% increase in military spending. That's an increase of $54 billion from approximately $600 billion that will be paired with cuts to other agency. His so-called America First budget will also increase funding for local law enforcement while cutting funds to the EPA, State Department, foreign aid, and social programs. Medicare and Social Security are apparently not on the budgetary chopping block. Trump's plan is only in the outlining stage, and the final plan should be revealed in the upcoming weeks. Now joining us to discuss this budget increase for the Pentagon is Larry Wilkerson, who joins us from Williamsburg. Larry is the former chief of staff for U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, currently an adjunct professor of government at the College of William and Mary, and a regular contributor to Real News. Thanks for joining us again, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. So does America, in order to defend itself, need another 10, a 10% increase in the military budget? No, it certainly does not. It needs a substantial cut in the military budget, and that would enhance national security because it would uh, force the Pentagon, the military, to do some of the things that it needs to do to meet the future better. Uh, I understand, too, that this $54 billion or whatever it is, it's not clear whether it's going to come out of the authorized line or, or, or going to go into the authorized line or go into OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operations Slush Fund, which needs to be killed entirely. Um, that's a big issue for me, too, is which, which account it goes into. And the payers in this are, are just ridiculous. Uh, the EPA... Uh, state and U.S. aid uh, as the bigger bill payers, and as I understand it, too, some of the safety net programs, although he's promised to, but I don't put much store in his promises, to uh, keep Medicare, Social Security, and other essential programs like that going. Um, we simply don't have the money to do all of this, and the fact that we have a $600-plus billion defense budget and really a $1.1 or $2 trillion national security budget when you throw nuclear weapons and Department of Energy, the VA, and all the rest of the security budget in there is just ridiculous. We have a bigger national security budget than the rest of the world combined. It's absurd. So why is he doing it? I'm sorry? Why is he doing it? He's doing it because he promised to do it. I do believe that uh, Donald Trump, uh, anything he promised in his campaign that uh, is going to keep his base titillated, apparently he's not doing that good a job even of that right now, judging by the poll numbers, uh, he'll do. And this is one of the biggest things he promised to do. 
When he, uh, one of his campaign promises uh, in one of the speeches, he was critiquing the regime change policy in, in Iraq. For a time, he critiqued it in Libya, although uh, there's some video surfaced of how he actually wanted to send U.S. troops into Libya. So that was a bit of a, a con. Um, that being said, he had, at one time he actually said, don't you worry, military guys, meaning military industrial producers, uh, war manufacturers, there'll be plenty in this budget for you, too. Um, the main promise seems to have been to the industrial military complex. That's the promise he's keeping. Well, he's keeping the promise to them to keep their money flowing and their jobs intact and so forth. And that's one of the first things you should do to get their vote. As I understand it, he probably got the military vote, certainly in the enlisted ranks. And he probably got a lot of the defense industrial complex vote, too, for the very reason that you just suggested. Um, this is what presidents do to keep that vote in their pocket and also to keep the American people writ large with that all-important security issue, at least potentially in their pocket, if not already there. Now, 10 percent, it's a fair amount of money, so, you know, $54 billion. Uh, does this suggest that he has plans for something? And we know we, you and I have talked about this before. Um, he certainly, his foreign policy uh, speeches and, and those of the people in his cabinet, more or less, have all said Iran is the problem. Uh, that probably means they would like to snap sanctions back, perhaps more. Uh, there's been the suggestion that he said in Trump's speech at the CIA, where he talks about how if I'd been president, we would have grabbed the oil. And then he says, uh, maybe we'll have another chance. I mean, is part of this that they are planning something? I don't think so. I hope not, because all of those things you suggested, plus a number of others I could conjure up, would not be good for this country, not in our national interest, uh, primarily because prima facie they're not in our national interest, but also because uh, we can't afford to be doing these sorts of things. Uh, Paul, let's face it. We can't afford another $54 billion on the military. Where are we going to get it? Print it? We're going to go out with uh, war bonds? to the American people, or maybe to the Chinese or the Japanese or the British, our biggest biggest uh, benefactors, where are we going to get this money? Uh, we've gotten four-plus billion dollars over the last year or two in this quantitative easing program simply by going to the Treasury and printing it, or to the Mint and printing it. Uh, this is unsustainable. It's disastrous policy. And, you know, I, I don't know where we're headed. Well, the argument they're giving is that the American armed force, the hardware, the cyber warfare and such, it all needs to be modernized. Uh, General McMaster, who's going to be advising uh, Trump, uh, he's been pushing for a new tank, a new or armored vehicles, uh, uh, lots of rhetoric around the need to have a major overhaul and modernization, uh, suggesting somehow that Russia and China are actually more modernized than the United States is. All of which is nonsense. And I wouldn't be talking about tanks. I wouldn't be talking about aircraft carriers. I wouldn't be talking about bombers. I wouldn't even be talking about F-35 stealth fighters. I'd be talking about things like 3D printing, robotics, artificial intelligence, and other technologies that are coming on so fast that they're going to make all these legacy systems, which are extremely expensive and make for the military industrial complex, of course, a lot of money. Uh, passe. Uh, let, just look at the uh, underwater dimension, for example, 3D printing a, a, a submarine that's unmanned, and that's the future, Paul, not manned flight, not manned 
unmanned. You put a submarine under the ocean and hang a few smart torpedoes, smart mines on it. You go out. And by the way, for the price of a Nimitz-class carrier, Ford-class carrier, you can build about 150,000 of these submarines. And you go out and you kill that $14 billion Ford-class aircraft carrier. Or you kill a $4 billion, $5 billion ballistic missile-class submarine, Ohio-class submarine. That's the new technologies. And by the way, those technologies are going to be in the hands of state and non-state actors sooner rather than later. These are the kinds of things we should be looking at. These are huge cost savings technologies. They're deadly, dangerous technologies. We need to have protocols and standards, international law, and other things uh, in place for their use. Cyber warfare, as you were talking about, going after people's networks. Nowhere, of course, is there anyone more vulnerable than ourselves to that kind of warfare. These are, the, these are the items, the technologies of the future, not aircraft carriers, not stealth fighter planes, uh, perhaps not even submarines based on what I just said about unmanned submarines taking them out. So, uh, you know, I would rather see the Pentagon thinking along those lines, developing systems along those lines and getting a lot leaner in the process uh, rather than getting more money, which is just going to kind of make them very comfortable with their current ways all of which are, are dangerous for our future. You were, uh, you know, you were chief of staff for Colin Powell. You got a pretty good look at a very senior level of how military policy is established. How, how much is this driven straight banally just about money making? That they, you know, military industrial complex lobbies, they get expensive weapon system. They, you know, they, they fund various members of the Senate and Congress and so on. I mean, how much is this just rather banal ways of having weapon systems to make people that own these manufacturers wealthier? It's a huge part of it now. In 19, late 1970s, Paul, when I was a major working on the high-mobility multipurpose wheel vehicle, now called commonly the Hummer, um, I was told by the Congress to go back to Fort Benning at the time, and I had a $400 million program, and they said, you got to have a bigger program. got to have a bigger program. It's got to be in every state you can get it in. I went back, developed a $9 billion program for a 59,000 vehicle buy, and sold the program. Um, that was in the late 70s. It's mushroomed majorly since then. Now we have uh, helicopters and fighter planes and ships and other things built, a component of which is built in every state. We have 100 senators behind them. We have countless representatives behind them. I'm not saying that when the president says he wants a war, he goes to the Congress and they say, well, here it is. But I am saying that when they make a decision to support him, when the president even makes a decision to go to war, all of this money, all of this commercial interest, all of these jobs, are very much in their minds. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. 
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, plan a Martin Luther King Beyond Vietnam speech event for April 4th. On April 4th, 1967, at the Riverside Church in New York City, Martin Luther King delivered one of his most famous speeches. It was called Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. The speech confronted the deeply rooted racism, militarism, and materialism of the United States and describes our country as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. In that speech, Dr. King offered a stern warning. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. He also questioned a war justified by the fear of an ideology such as communism, the boogeyman of the day. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again and then show it up upon the power of new violence? Dr. King's challenge to engage in a radical revolution of values encountered vicious opposition then, but now, 50 years later, his speech and its call to action is more relevant than ever. That is why the National Council of Elders, founded by Dr. Vincent G. Harding, who wrote the draft of the Beyond Vietnam speech, is encouraging everyone to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the speech by hosting speech-reading events in their communities on April 4th. The organization Veterans for Peace is supporting this call to action and asking its chapters to organize and host events. To reach out to a Veterans for Peace chapter near you to see if you can volunteer at their event, go to veteransforpeace.org and select Find Chapters under the Chapters tab. If you or your organization would like to organize an event of your own, select the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's Beyond Vietnam speech under the Take Action tab on veteransforpeace.org. There, you will find a toolkit that includes the full text of the Beyond Vietnam speech, tips on how to organize your event, who to invite, and more. Again, we ask that you help us in our work to amplify the most effective activism. If you've come across an action or a new organization that is doing great work getting people engaged to resist the Trump agenda, please share it with us by emailing amanda at bestofleft.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if fighting the multi-trillion dollar war economy that is destroying us from without and from within is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about planning a Martin Luther King Jr. Beyond Vietnam speech reading event for April 4th via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. And if we will only make 
the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. If we will make the right choice, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we will but make the right choice, we will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? Speaking of useful idiots, uh, I want to talk about Sebastian Gorka uh, for a, a, a moment. <laughs> a mixture of fascism, of communism, all wrapped up in the religion of Islam. And it's these people you must read and understand if you wish to understand the threat to America and why it truly is an existential threat. He is uh, in the news a lot uh, because Trump and Bannon have put him there. What does it mean that he is in the position he's in right now, and who is he? He started showing up at events that I was at probably around 2011, 12, if I had to you know, put a guess on the date, and would be a panelist and always very strong, very antagonistic, uh, oftentimes rude towards you know other panelists that were there, very aggressive and always sort of fawning over the military, law enforcement, tough talk, which was good for his business. I mean, he's primarily a trainer. You know, he's trying to sell training or what I call edutainment. You know, it's a, co- a cross between education and entertainment, and it's not good at either one, really. You know, and you're just getting a show. And so what you see is very typical of, <laughs> of President Trump, which is he sees somebody that's saying something that he likes or that makes sense, and it's a very simple explanation. He's seeing somebody who's a very good presenter, and he is a, Gorka is a very good showman. He is a dynamic, engaging speaker. You can't deny that at all. But under the surface, when you look at his claims and what they're actually about, they're oftentimes very hollow, uh, no more than an inch deep. They play to the audience that is hiring him and bringing him his cash stream. If you want people to read your book, especially Americans, you must have a good story. <laughs> the first time I watched him, and he repeats this every time, is uh, I know what they're saying because I read the Quran in English. He doesn't know that part because he doesn't know Arabic. And, you know, I've studied it. And all you got to do is read what they say and know that we're at war with Islam. And then he'll sort of tailor back and say radical Islam. And then when you try and pin him down on that, it's like it could be anything under the sun. And the strategies that he's picking are exactly the ones for which Al-Qaeda attacked us with the foreign enemy doctrine to begin with, backing apostate dictators who don't obey human rights and are, you know, hard on their people and clamping down on terrorism in ways that are not beneficial to the U.S. And that's generally the strategy of Trump. We're going to partner in ways like we did in the 90s, which ultimately brought the rise of Al-Qaeda. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think what you see with Gorka and this is not limited. This is Bannon. This is Gorka. This is that strain in the inner White House. They want this in times battle with Islam. 
and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They'll clamp down and be hard to be tough and look tough uh, in the face of the adversary, which is poorly defined. And that'll provoke terrorist attacks. And they'll say, see, I told you so. I, I told you we have to clamp down on harder. It's a it's a weird phenomenon that they're running with. If you at the on the one hand have Trump going after the CIA, putting pressure on the FBI and then putting people like Gorka, who are basically fanboys of the special operations community, that to me is what's dangerous about this because you have a disproportionate number of kind of Jerry Boykin acolytes uh, within that world than you do in the broader U.S. military. And it concerns me that a guy like Gorka, it's not its not that he says something about Trump's politics, it says something about their strategy, that these are the kinds of guys that they want around. The fact that you have Gorka and Bannon and Stephen Miller and these kind of radical ideologues who view Islam as the cancer on the world and that our main mission should be to destroy it, what does that say about the broader risks that are posed by Trump's presidency on a national security level? Well, it's very blindsided. I mean, it's so narrow and so hyper-focused on an issue that you might put number five under the Obama administration. I mean, Islamic extremism has been a big deal for a while, but you could see it start to move away. China, Iran, we were back in this nation-state stuff with Russia. We're now pivoting right back to refighting Iraq in 2005, you know, that sort of thinking. And it's going to blind us to all these other more legitimate threats. For example, I'm really excited about McMaster being in there as a national security advisor because Flynn was deeply scary to me. But if you look at even McMaster, um, Mattis, Kelly, a lot of these military people they've pushed forward, who's in charge of the cyber attack that hits the United States and is the expert on it? It's definitely not Gorka, Bannon, or any of these folks. They're, they're basically turning a blind eye to every issue except for radical Islam. They're also doing several things. One, they're playing up to war. They're playing up to defense spending, which I just talked about before. And they're playing up to the biggest and best killing machine that's ever been created in, in history. What is super scary about it to me is you're looking at people who have got a thimble of knowledge about a lot of these groups that we're tackling right now. Al-Qaeda and ISIS have never been so uh, disaggregated and spread on so many different continents. Uh, you can't lump them all together. You've got them dangerously lumping Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS all as allies right now. That is lunacy. You're creating a big enemy so that you can then go fight it when – I have to say under the Obama administration and the end of the Bush administration after the sort of missteps, we really reoriented in a much smarter way to be more nimble and focus on what is the real threat we want to to worry about, which is no attacks on the homeland, uh, you know, going after core al-Qaeda leaders, trying to stay out of a lot of these insurgency campaigns. And we are almost just across the board, the Trump and that inner circle, it's we're going to undo everything that was done before us and we're going to double down on those that we want to be most like. And it's a general insecurity. Trump, Bannon, Gorka are insecure about themselves and the way they build their security is to is to try and reinforce and touch on those people that are the toughest in the business. Surrounding himself with people like Bannon and Gorka, he's bought into this and I think can only understand this binary conversation about terrorism. He doesn't Bannon and Gorka, Gorka, we'll talk about him. He especially clearly does not understand radicalization process and what happens to an individual as they go through that process. And there's many stepping off points. You can't argue that there isn't something tied to religion with um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and other groups like this, but he doesn't even understand how it's tied in. He thinks it's really about 
mainstream Islam and the Quran and what it teaches. He's reading this literal version of the Quran. And if you did that with the Bible, you'd come out with the same sort of outlook of violence and um, death and <laughs> destruction. I mean, it's not... I was terrified as he, a kid every time understand. we'd read the Old Testament. I, was, I would be like, right. I would have nightmares for months. Exactly. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And he doesn't understand the philosophy and the education that goes into understand, you know, interpreting these historical texts. The fact that Gorka can't even understand that on a basic level means that he is completely the wrong person to be looking at countering terrorism and understanding the Middle East at all whatsoever. Now, back to your question about the DOD. It does bother me that he is just surrounding himself with one single type of, of viewpoint, because this isn't there's a lot of tools in this toolkit that he should be using, the State Department, the intelligence community. If you're only seeing everything, and I hate this analogy, but you're going to use it as a nail and you have a hammer, that's all you're going to use. A lot of these generals don't have this interagency experience. They don't understand what, how to build governance processes. They, they could tear stuff down, you know, and, and clean, the, clean the path forward, but they don't know how to rebuild because that's just not what the military does and that's not what they're charged with. I would say the same thing for with um, the reliance on JSOC. I don't understand, on one hand, how continuing to use this tool over and over again as a strategy, and anyone would see it that way. There are limitations to using anything continuously. Same thing with drones. What I don't see at all is a nuance of understanding of global outlook and in addition to how we can actually uh, develop and enact a foreign policy that's not based on military conditions. You know, on that token, it does seem as though Trump believes that Mike Pompeo is his guy uh, and, and Pompeo is the director of the Central Intelligence Agency now. That probably would be of concern to you. I mean, if it's if 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 they're striking deals to get cabinet posts that could potentially compromise them as director of an agency such as the CIA, that that could be real problematic. It it concerns me to the extent that I think if there is undue influence by the administration and expectation that you toe the line according to what they want versus the reality of the situation on the ground. Absolutely, because what that does is politicize the structure of the intelligence community. So you can politicize the information that comes out, you know, possibly develop your own team that feeds the um, bottom line that you're after, but you can also do it through the structure. That, to me, is one of the more concerning underlying factors in how he's treating the intelligence community, because if it's always serving his needs and serving his view of the world, you may as well not have one.
We just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, breaking down the renewed debate over torture. Quirks and Quarks laid out the scientific evidence for why torture doesn't result in reliable information. Counterspin highlighted some of the media reactions to Trump basically defending the killers in Russia. Democracy Now! discussed the White House line and stifling dissent after the Yemen raid. The Young Turks pointed out Trump's unwillingness to take personal responsibility for the military operation he approved. The Real News Network spoke with Larry Wilkerson about Trump's proposed military spending increase. Our activism for today is in support of the Beyond Vietnam speech reading events. And finally, we just heard Intercepted discuss the anti-Islam zealots that have found their way to power in the Trump White House. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. This is Rick from Madison, Wisconsin, and i just like to wish a R.I.P. to the great Alan Combs, who left us recently a great voice in the progressive movement, even though he worked for Fox News and was good friends with Sean Hannity and other conservatives. He was a great man. He will be sorely missed. And he was definitely a voice that we need now more than ever. And I'm hoping there are people out there that will pick up where he left off. We need more warriors out there. We need people that are willing to punch back. The conservatives have kicked us around for way too long, and we can't take this shit anymore. We can't be nice. We can't just have love. It's time to get some teeth and bite back. Hi, Jay. This is Sunny calling from St. Paul. Uh, I just listened to episode, I think it's 1081, about where the Democrats went wrong. And I'm um, listening to Jenks segment at the end just brought me way back to 2008 when Obama was first elected and how incredibly joyful and excited I and so many of my friends felt. And I just realized, listening to Jenk talk about Justice Democrats, that what we felt then was, I think, what the Trump supporters felt when he was inaugurated, because I think at least I know I and my close friends, we really thought that Obama was going to be a disruptor and shake everything up and bring real progressive change to government, much like Trump has promised and certainly is disrupting things. But if Obama had done the things that he talked about during his campaign, I think we'd be in a whole different place right now. And I agree with Jenk that the Democrat uh, the Democratic uh, Party is really basically the Republican Party from about 30 years ago. And uh, so I'm excited about Justice Democrats because maybe that's the answer to so many of my friends have become independents instead of, you know, they've left the Democratic Party in disgust. And I don't necessarily think that's the answer, but maybe a grassroots reemergence of the old Democrats, the progressive, fiery Democrats. So anyway, I just... Uh, had a little bit more compassion, I guess, maybe, or something for the Trump supporters who are probably getting what they had anticipated, at least uh, this first month, he seems to be riling things up. So anyway, thanks for all you do. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay, this is Ken calling from Raleigh, North Carolina again. Just wanted to say thank you for uh, your response to my voicemail a couple weeks ago. I actually hadn't heard the term fragility used in that context, and uh, that's exactly the word I was looking for. 
ultimately, I did make the right choice and went for Hillary, especially being in North Carolina, being a swing state. And I recognize that this week in blackness was absolutely right. I think Donald Trump's going to get to each and every one of us, including straight white guys. But I am in a position of privilege. I will be one of the last people he gets to. So they were absolutely right. I just didn't like the way they argued it. And I wanted to elevate our discussion. In addition, I just listened to Friday's episode and heard the uh, voicemail from uh, Kiki asking about the immigration, like a progressive immigration policy. And um, I'm actually working on finishing a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and I just took an ethics and international affairs course that discussed briefly the immigration policy in the context of international affairs and um, I don't know if I have an answer for him but I learned a few things that I thought I could share that might help arm him and other listeners. The traditional conservative argument that we hear frequently against immigration is usually economic. The idea that immigrants, particularly illegal immigrants, come in and take jobs out of the economy for citizens. There is a liberal argument for immigration that says that they come in and they take jobs that citizens don't want to have or that they come in and they spend money in our college institutions, get a better education, and generally we succeed when more people around us also succeed. But the biggest argument that I hear for immigration from the liberal side is that it's humanitarian grants and that argument doesn't seem to carry a whole lot of weight with conservatives conservatives are fine with humanitarian acts and there's still the belief that you should help people but generally conservative values do seem to include the idea that you do it yourself and you help your own first so there's this very closed-off approach to strangers, particularly people from other countries. The big thing that I pulled from the discussion of the uh, class and the readings that I did for the class was there are other grounds that are not as frequently discussed. One of the most fascinating ones was the idea of, particularly in democracy, the people's ability to control the cultural destiny of the country. The idea is that if we had completely open borders, eventually our culture would not be what it is today. And that doesn't seem to get discussed very much, but I think it plays a large subconscious role in our discussions on immigration. It's not exactly racist, but it's the idea, if you've ever heard someone complain about Mexican immigrants moving in and they don't speak English. It's not that they're frustrated that they're having a difficult time communicating. It's the idea that they're concerned that the culture is changing. The same thing can be applied to LGBTQ, all sorts of issues that we face in America, and we sort of tiptoe around them. I wonder if a good way to for progressives to direct the immigration question 
is to ask whether or not it's acceptable for us to steer our culture in such a way, or if we should let our culture develop more organically. At any rate, I thought it was something that Kiki and the other listeners could ponder on the idea that maybe America doesn't want to change socially too much, or the idea that maybe we should, and we need to come up with good arguments why that should be the case. Thanks again for the show, Jay. Sorry it ran on a little long. Appreciate all you do, and thanks to all the listeners and their advice. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. I just wanted to follow up on what we just heard from Ken, just one of the parts that we heard from Ken uh, in, in the beginning of his message. He was talking about how he called in a couple of weeks ago. He described about how he was offended by something he heard on This Week in Blackness. I responded to him and laid out the concept of fragility, generally the idea where people with various degrees of privilege are fragile when confronted with that privilege. So Ken is a straight white guy, former conservative, was offended by uh, what a, a panel of black people had said about uh, his potential voting strategy. I said that was a, a version of being uh, fragile. And then you just heard Ken's response. And so I, I was just reminded that this goes a lot further. You know, the, the concept of fragility goes in other directions as well. And I, so I wanted to touch on this because I, I remembered a great email I received. And so fragility in, in the context of taking offense is very often referred to as political correctness. This is all kind of a mishmash of an issue with a lot of almost interchangeable terms. So uh, let's bring political correctness into this. Listener member Matt sent this email a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months ago. And just made a really interesting point and, and, and told an interesting story. So I just want to read this to you. A truncated version of his email says, in part, On social media of late, when my conservative friends complain of political correctness, I've been reminding them that conservatives do the same thing. They also indulge in fits of political correctness. I mentioned Colin Kaepernick or perhaps the most recent tweet by Trump regarding flag burning. On one exchange, I wrote, quote, Kaepernick didn't bother me at all, but I get that his behavior upset those with a different set of buttons. We can all start to take it easy, perhaps when all of us understand where the buttons are and how to avoid them. Think you might be able to manage that, unquote. Continuing the email, this line of reasoning worked with the conservative I tried it on. He said he would try to respect others' feelings. Note that I didn't give up and walk away. Rather, I tried to relate the issue to things he valued, such as patriotism or the military, to show that I could respect his values if he could respect mine. Not accept, but respect. So I love that for all kinds of reasons. He makes a really great point. He had a thoughtful conversation with a conservative on social media, a, you know, a, a noteworthy feat by any measure. So just to add on to that, I'm in total agreement. We all have our versions of political correctness. So anyone who goes around using that term with disdain is completely full of shit. You 
no matter who you are, you have something that you take offense to uh, for a variety of reasons. But there is an enormous difference in the different types of things people take offense to. So normally it's it's the progressives or the left who are looked at with disdain for sticking up for political correctness. But the other version is completely ignored. No one takes note that taking offense to flag burning or not standing up for the national anthem is a version of political correctness. But not just any kind of political correctness, completely and utterly symbolic political correctness that has no bearing in reality and has no concrete impacts on anyone's life except inside your own head. The difference is that when progressives are sticking up for political correctness, it's because they're sticking up for real human beings who are actually being concretely negatively affected by whatever the issue is, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, all of those things fall under the category of progressive political correctness. But note that we're standing up for real people who are actually having their lives either adversely impacted or literally cut short due to the effects of that which we are fighting against, not the completely symbolic bullshit that other people waste their time with. So whoever you are, I guarantee you have some form of political correctness, something that you take offense to that you feel compelled to stand up for. So ask yourself, what kind of political correctness is it? Are you sticking up for the overdog? Are you sticking up for the U.S. government as if they need your protection? Are you sticking up for a religion like Christianity in America, where 80% of the population is Christian and is not being threatened in any way? Or are you sticking up for the exact opposite of that? Are you sticking up for the underdogs of society, those who are being most adversely affected by those incredibly powerful institutions of the government or Christians in this country? Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links, to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is before.